0: So, this episode serves as a roadmap for health professionals that are intrigued by the tech industry and want to learn how they can maximize their chances for making a successful transition.
1: Clinicians need to be digitally literate because
0: we're living in a world that is digital. We discussed the art of networking, the power of a robust digital presence, the importance of diversifying your skill set beyond clinical medicine and how you can leverage your unfair advantages. It's often a, a game of numbers. It's really easy now We're in this new digital age where we have social media, you can really easily make people aware of who you are, what you can do and why you're best at what you can do. Creating content and putting it out online. The value of that cannot be understated. Do you think there is an unfair advantage of being in London? I would say yes. In the health tech space, do you think finding opportunities is very much around who you know versus what you know? That is a great question. I'd say... A lot of people talk about how monetizing your passion is probably one of the worst things you can do. What's your perspective on this? Tough one, because money is a nice thing to have, but not money, but problems. (laughs) There's a growing intersection between healthcare and technology. And as this boundary and the lines in between blur, more and more clinicians are starting to feel this magnetic pull towards the tech industry. So what drives this pull and what drives this intrigue and how can a clinician successfully make this transition? Today I'm joined with Dr. Azim Alam who is the co-founder of Byteworld. Byteworld is a company that is dedicated to transforming medical education through innovative learning. They've recently launched their Byte Labs Health Tech Innovation Fellowship, which is an eight-week program designed to kickstart and accelerate clinician's journey into health tech. Azim recorded a podcast episode with Musti on the big picture medicine a couple years ago now. And on this episode, they talk about a framework for how you can get published as a medical student or doctor. And it's a fantastic episode, great listen, so I'll be linking it in the description. But I listened to this episode and thought, is there a way we can adapt the same structure, the same framework, but specifically for medical students or clinicians looking to break into the health tech industry. I was on the YouTube analytics today because I'm sad and that's pretty much where I spend most of my time if I'm not revising for medical school finals or obsessing over this podcast. And I realized that 80% of people that listen to this podcast are not yet subscribed. And so if it's useful and you enjoy this episode, then I ask one favor of you. And that is, please just hit that subscribe button or hit the follow button if you're on Spotify or Apple podcasts. It helps the channel to grow and it's free, so why not? I begin this episode by asking Azeem to break down some of the reasons that he's found for clinicians wanting to step into the tech industry. I hope you enjoy. Speaking from my own experience,
1: one of the big reasons I have been trying to build a career in in tech alongside my clinical career is because when you get the taste of building products that have a large impact on people, not large necessarily in terms of the direct impact, but in terms of the number of people that technology can impact. When you get a taste of that, it's difficult to let it go. So my first kind of playing around in the industry was in the ed tech industry rather than the health tech industry. And seeing that you can deliver a lecture online to a thousand people was a very small step in realizing that actually you can you can provide content and build products that can impact whole communities sometimes. So seeing that in the ed tech space and building a platform and educating people online was my first step. and. And a lot of clinicians move into tech because they realize they can build these products and they can impact patient care or the care of even, as I said, of populations at a faster scale and at a larger scale as well. So that's one big reason, both for myself and a lot of of colleagues of mine. And I think it's analogous to, to academia as well, to a degree, because a lot of academics, or, or cl- clinical academics, go into academia because they like using their brain to solve complex problems, publish that work, and then hopefully impact thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients. The interesting thing about tech is you can bypass a lot of the complexities and that are associated with academic work, and once again that list goes on. Things are often a little bit simpler when it comes to working in health tech and wanting to execute on products. I'm not saying from a regulatory standpoint, because obviously regulation is incredibly important, but the process is, in my experience, far more exciting, fast paced and agile than ever than any of my work in academia. Another that I've definitely found is very similar to clinical work when you're working in multidisciplinary teams. When you're working in tech, you are often, if you're a clinician, a subject matter expert to a degree. We know how to work with people. We know how to communicate and it's that communication piece which is drummed into you throughout medical school is how can you break down really complex information or complex problems? You can take those skills, bring them into tech, and you want to build a tool to, I don't know, detect urinary tract infections. You need to break that entire problem down into different pieces, and you need every single member of that team to understand what you're trying to do, whether that's data scientists, developers, designers, UI, UX, and people to really get on that vision. That's something I've really loved, that you can use so many skills that you've developed in the clinical world, bring them into tech, use them in a slightly different way to build products that impact millions of patients. So it's a different style of practicing medicine. And and a few colleagues of mine, I've, I've spoken about this at length, is should there just be a separate specialty for digital health, like there is for pharmaceutical medicine, where you're still practicing medicine, but just in a very different way? Success looks different. The feeling of self gratification feels very different as well, but a lot of the skills are incredibly transferable. So
0: few ideas there anyway, as I said, the list is probably much longer than that. It's definitely a long list. I think, so you're talking a lot about impact at scale there. A lot of what you spoke about were almost the selfless reasons for clinicians wanting to get into into tech, but there's also a lot of selfish reasons as well, whether it is this, you want autonomy over your whole career, work-life balance. In your experience, maybe talk a little bit about also those selfish reasons for you wanting to step into health tech as well. If we just start at the the basics, so pay, unfortunately
1: in the NHS is, is atrocious compared to the amount of hours and work that you've put in for that medical degree and obviously comparing overseas as well, pay outside of the NHS is, is different. I, I think if you're looking to become a to, to move directly from clinical work to tech without any tech experience, you obviously can't expect to be on hundreds of thousands of pounds. But what you can do is you can expect to be remunerated according to your work. And this is something that I found, I've always found frustrating with the NHS is you can be a wonderful, let's say radiologist, because that's the specialty I know the most. You can be the best radiologist, you can be working incredibly hard, upskilling yourself, learning at at a a rate twice as fast as as your peers, but A, still progress in your training at the same rate, B, progress in your pay at the same rate, uh, and C, when you get to the end of that training ladder, you know what pay you're going to be on, you know where you're going to be in your career more broadly. And I think one thing I've found is in the tech space, you are not only remunerated according to how good you are, or how much you succeed in inverted commas, but you progress according to that success. And you are often valued more within that organization, according to that success as well. And a lot of this comes down to value at the end of the day. And I guess, is that a selfish reason or not? I'm not sure. I think it is what it is. And everyone feels value in different ways. There are plenty of clinicians who pay is not their number one priority. But if you want to feel valued, what does that look like? Now, that can be small things. For example, one of my friends works at Google. And and if feeling valued means you get breakfast, lunch, and dinner provided for you, then great. If feeling valued means you have a free gym on site and get a massage once a week, great. It's about understanding what value feels like and means to you. For the majority of people, that is financial. And that is why so many clinicians are moving away. But for me, actually, I'd say probably the biggest reason was, I I do still work clinically now, but one of the biggest reasons for working in tech is I wanted to feel valued for the work that I put in. I think you can, you should be able to progress faster than the chronological calendar allows you to progress, essentially. Yeah, those, I I still don't, wouldn't necessarily call them selfish. I would just say,
0: these are really important things to be thinking about as a combination of push and pull factors. And when I was putting together somewhat of a framework that we could go to for clinicians looking to step into health tech, it was difficult because there isn't one, right? With, with with traditional pathways, if there's someone comes out of medical school and they want to specialize, whether it is, let's say, they want to go into, through the NT pathway, that is, it's a well trodden path. They know exactly the, the clear markers and milestones they're supposed to hit at each stage. And we're often taught you just basically knuckle down, work hard, get a couple publications under your belt, and you'll be fine. You'll be able to specialize in whatever specialty you want. Whereas health tech, the path is a bit more nebulous. You, you don't really know what you're getting into. And so tell me, how the Byte Labs Health Tech Innovation Fellowship addresses this very gap. Everything you've described
1: there is it's 100 on point, and a lot of what you've described is why so many pe- people are fearful about leaving the NHS. Full stop. It's because we're so used to a stepwise progression, a, a career ladder, which is entirely laid out from, for you from from day one of, of medical school. That stepping off that is is understandably a scary thing. So, Byte Labs was built to try and help people relieve some of those fears. So as you say, there is no digital health or health tech training program as much as people think and I think there should be. But what there is, there are key skills that clinicians, not just doctors, but allied health professionals generally and healthcare students should be able to learn that can allow them to build impactful products. So what the Biolights Health Tech Fellowship is that it is a health tech program where leaders, predominantly clinicians who now work in the tech space, teach over an eight week program, the key skills required to succeed. Everything from product management to lean canvas, a little bit of data, the role of AI in health tech, how to create a business plan, etc. And you learn this. I, I don't do any of the teaching. I very much know my limitations, but I, I have friends of mine who are, they work at Google, they work at Amazon or Meta or whoever, wherever it may be working in the health tech spaces in, in these big tech companies, and they have incredible knowledge that clinicians should be learning because the house of commons came out with their report a couple of months ago about digital transformation in the NHS. It's a fascinating report. There are a lot of words in it, but from my understanding, very little actionable from that report. But the overall summary is that clinicians need to be digitally literate because we're living in a world that is digital. Things like whether it's AI and chat GPT or DALI or whatever it is, Patients are becoming aware of these things. Patients have questions. How is my care going to change with the advent of artificial intelligence? I got diagnosed through ChatGPT 3 What does that mean for me? So if there's no training, then we're going to be left with a workforce that is behind the times. And that's really what we aim to do is, number one, teach those skills. Number two, provide practical experience. So actually build products using those skills and pitch them to health tech experts. Because that whole process is vital for quality improvement generally within the NHS and number three, which arguably I think is probably the most important is you have to feel part of a network or a community that you feel like you belong in. So I've been very blessed with being able to build a group of incredible friends who are all in the tech space now. And I feel like that is a community that I fit quite well into. But the reason labs came about is because clinicians would be messaging me on LinkedIn or Reddit, or Reddit or via email saying, I want to get into tech. I don't know anyone in this space. I feel trapped in medicine. And now we have a community of thousands actually through biolabs of clinicians working in tech or working in VC or some of those allied areas related to tech and feeling like you belong somewhere and that you're not alone in that journey is incredibly important. So that is the big third aim is
0: making people feel like they belong and they're not alone in that journey. It's fantastic what you guys are doing. I, the, the review that you're talking about in terms of understanding why the NHS and the workforce isn't digitally li- literate, it highlighted a, a number of assumptions. And those were just the fact that the younger generation is expected to just understand this technology without any formal teaching. And I, I guess th- this is a problem with the NHS in terms of the, that assumption has then led them to not address the fact that actually students health professionals are extremely digitally illiterate so what you're proposing with with the health tech innovation fellowship it is obviously you're providing the resources the opportunities for clinicians health professionals to firstly gain that digital literacy that initially they should have but they don't and secondly as you said providing that network and providing the opportunities and what you're doing is great it's an accelerator almost and catapulting people into the health tech space you're setting the fellows up for success right whether it is you're exposing to them to the network you're helping them build their portfolio and it is great but it's obviously highly competitive and it makes me wonder about the alternative opportunities that there are because you you don't necessarily obviously need the Byte labs fellowship to get into health tech despite it being an accelerator and provide you and open up doorways that you otherwise wouldn't have by yourself in terms of getting your initial foot in the door you spoke a little bit about the art of cold emailing and building your professional network through writing an email that gets a response and being concise, but obviously that, that's a skill that medics aren't really, I don't think anyone is really taught, right? Let's break down how someone can reach out for an opportunity via, whether it is a message on LinkedIn or a cold email and maximize their chance of a, a response. That's a great question. In terms
1: of the art of cold emailing or messaging, it's often a, a game of numbers. I'm not saying you spam thousands of people and wait for a response. That's not the way to go, but it requires persistence. First of all, as a caveat, you need to be persistent at this and you need to put yourself out there. Those are incredibly obvious, but those are actually the two reasons why most people don't necessarily succeed in building their network is either they give up too early or they expect things to fall in their lap straight away. So the first thing I would do is I would consider what is your value proposition? The main problem as well with, with cold outreach is people's value proposition or their, their precise ask alongside their value proposition is too vague. So if people reach out to me on LinkedIn, I do try and reply to as, as many people as I can. If the, re- if the request, I'll give you an example because it's probably easier. If someone says, hey, I think, I'd love to grab a coffee, are you around next week? Nine times out of ten, that's a very difficult message to reply to because you need to unpick exactly what on earth this person wants from you. Whereas if someone reaches out to you and say, hi, I'm X. I am ax year medical student or doctor. Um, I have experience in X, Y, and Z. I'm looking to develop my skills in X. Um, I'd love to grab a coffee and see how I might be able to help by labs or your organization with some of this expertise that I have. Are you around next week? Then I'm like, oh, fine. Okay, that makes more sense. Like you want to gain this experience. We can figure out what that looks like. You have a skill set. And that make that. Is going to vastly increase your chances of anyone getting back to you i think th- those there's a couple of points is value proposition and what is your ask of this person and controversially it's more about giving than asking when it comes to cold outreach is that you want to be able to give someone something ideally whether that is time or service i'm not saying you give a bunch of resources for free or your time for free but Selfishly, once again, people will respond to things that usually they're going to gain something from, or that organization will gain something from. So just bear those things in mind. Personalize it. People love flattery. and I, I, I do as well. Everyone does. If you can give them a compliment that is very specific to them, that if you're reaching out to an academic, which is what I tried to do when I tried to get into academia many years ago, is you reach out to professor X at X university, and you can mention a paper they published last month that changed your worldview on neurobiology. They're going to love it. Whether you actually love it or not is a different question, but they will love hearing it. Those are a few tips. And then, then think, yeah. how are you going to spread your tentacles? Like is don't just do LinkedIn, there's LinkedIn, there's old school email, I, I still love old school email, and then your network around you so if you're still at medical school and you feel like you don't know anyone i guarantee friends of friends or like your lecturers and oh you just need to talk to more people around you we all know what well, the six degrees of separation is it's a very powerful tool and then, link to that how do you meet those people get yourself at events essentially so whether that is james summary's incredible somex events whether that is biolabs events whether that is digital health conferences or medtech malta there are so many out there now there's no excuse if you want to break into tech or develop that experience there's no excuse not to go to these and just talk to as many people as you can i am relatively introverted but
0: you need to break through that and just put yourself out there and what is the worst that could happen cliche as that sounds that's fantastic advice i've been doing a lot of reading into the four different types of luck and how to maximize them to ch- to increase your chance of success so you mentioned The second type of luck, which is luck from hustling. So basically forcing the universe's hand. So by attending more networking events, by messaging loads of people on LinkedIn, you're effectively increasing the chances and statistics of someone actually replying to you or someone taking a liking to you, taking you under their wing, for example. And then you also spoke about luck through preparation. And this is something I speak about a lot because so many people undervalue the power of this. So imagine going to a networking event, but you've already researched into the keynote speakers and you've already prepared three really interesting questions for them to ask. If you make an impression when you speak to them, because you've done that preparation beforehand, they are going to remember you over someone who just comes up to them and asks just generic questions. How's your day? Blah, blah, blah. And then I guess the second thing is, how do you then capitalize on that? You built this network by hustling and preparing yourself appropriately so then how do you then capitalize on the next step and find those opportunities
1: i think it depends on what capitalize means to the person in question it really depends what your personal and professional goals are if it is you want to get a job you capitalize on the people by asking whether there are roles available that that is pretty straightforward the more people in the space the more likelihood there is that they will you will find avenues to go down that align with your professional goals if your goal is i just want to have i want to have like-minded people around me that i can bounce ideas off to build a startup you do some of the leg work and figuring out what is this thing that you might want to build and then you get the right people you contact those people who are hopefully now friends or colleagues with you to understand whether this idea has legs everyone is has a slightly different Everyone has different experiences and is a slightly different type of subject matter expert to a degree. And I think it's just realizing that and being able to remember things. And I think that is, when I say remember things, once again, it's it's straightforward concept, but being someone who actually takes a genuine interest in other people. So you don't just remember where they work and what their job title is, but the people you have around you you have to reframe the way you look at them as well. You're not looking at them for a job. You're looking at them because this is going to be your friend and peer and colleague, potentially for the rest of your life and career. And then obviously great things often come from those things. Like everyone that I've had in my network around me, I'd say is it's because we have similar interests and you just get on and you go down to the pub and have a drink and, and then things often flourish from there. You don't want these relationships to be transactional. Because transactional relationships in my mind are are not real relationships you necessarily want to keep. It's you found it on something real, whatever that may look like for you and then build from there. I think if you found it on just a transactional, I would like a job that is a very flimsy relationship and it will fall through eventually. So you want to be able to nurture these relationships with the people around you. Which, once again, is not a necessarily specific answer, but just something that I've definitely seen over the years. much better to have a small number of genuine relationships in this space than have hundreds of people you know by name that you just ask
0: from every now and then. Yeah. No, that's a fantastic point. Sometimes I do forget it when I'm at a conference trying to get someone on the podcast and I run up to them. I, I almost neglect the fact that, you know what, I should start off the, the conversation by just having it. like, yeah, just like getting them to be my friend. <laughs> and then maybe from mm. there they can come on the podcast. But yeah, r- really great advice. And so you, you talk about the benefits of Lab, One of them being specifically opening up n- Lab's network to the fellows that come in. And so... Mm. Networking is obviously opens up unexpected doors and you can leverage your network to to gain opportunities that you otherwise wouldn't have. And so tell me in the health tech space, do you think finding opportunities is very much around who, you know, versus what, you know? That is a great question. I'd say,
1: I'd say particularly in the early stages of your career, like your journey into tech or health tech or digital health, it's going to be. A hundred percent, who, in my opinion, from my experience. Uh, I say a hundred percent, it's obviously not a hundred percent, but I'd say leaning towards who you know more so than what you know. And that's because getting your foot in the door is obviously difficult. There are now digital health and innovation degrees. There are doctors doing masters in data science. There are doctors who are trying to become developers. The competition on a CV point of view is only rising for the same reasons that we discussed previously of why people go into tech more people than ever want to. The attrition rates after medical school are the highest in history and post-foundation are the highest in history. So you are up against a lot of people, not to put you off, but obviously if you're just if you're assessing people based on their CV, it is difficult to stand out now because everyone is trying to do additional things. So getting the foot in the door, I would definitely say it's who you know more than necessarily what you know. Because if you have two identical CVs and someone has done an internal referral or is vouching for you, that person is is far more likely, obviously going to get that role. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't make your CV competitive, you should obviously try and get as much experience as you can, but the real thing that will open the door is probably someone in that organization that you have developed a genuine relationship with that can vouch for you and say, look, I know you, I know this person, and I know that they'll be a great addition to this company. They have the experience. They may not have all the experience in the world, but you can get upskilled in an organization. And that's what organizations love, is you don't need to know everything first day on the job. You need to be able to someone they can mold and nurture, and you can grow in that organization. They'd much rather have someone who's there for 10 years and works their way up because they genuinely love what they do than someone who has all the experience in the world and is just chasing the next increased paycheck, and they just spend six months in each organization. So that is why it's so important in the early stages to have someone that can back you. As you progress, of course, like if you spend four years at a tech company, you have that on your CV, you have more to leverage both salary-wise and balance-wise, et cetera. And you'll have more responsibility, but that's it's a two-way street because the more time you spend in the space, the more people you're gonna know, the more experience you get, and you just double it. I guess, square squaring the likelihood of you getting another great role because you've got the experience and more people because you've spent so long in the space. So I think if you probably in terms of on balance with what probably decreases slightly
0: as you progress in your career uh, in this space, anyways, it's probably my two cents and my follow-up question to that is somewhat related about leveraging your unfair advantages. So London is obviously in it innovation hotspot at the moment. I was recently speaking to Jess from SumEx around their events that they specifically host in London and how they're looking to expand and have events across the UK. But at the moment, even Bytelabs' Innovations Fellowship is based in London. It seems to be an innovative hotspot. So my question to you is, and so I'm specifically interested in this as someone who is looking to graduate and hopefully get my foundation post in London and weighing up the options of whether it's worth going to London or not. Do you think there is an unfair advantage of being in London? Yes.
1: I would say in terms of particularly in the early stages of your career, when it's so important building like-minded people around you and and a network around you, it does give you an unfair advantage. And I I wouldn't say that me answering any differently is probably just not going to be true. I think historically, yes, you can have wonderful Zoom calls and Teams calls, but there's nothing quite like meeting someone face to face and sharing a coffee or a drink with them and actually getting to know them. So I think it does give you an unfair advantage. However, I wouldn't. Obviously, it depends how far you are from London. If you're not far, you can just travel in and meet these people. But if you are far away from London, do not let your geography put you off from these opportunities because there are obviously great companies who have offices in both in London, but also outside of London. Yes, you may not be able to get to as many tech events and conferences, but I think it's going to be, if you're trying to get to those, a lot of it's just going to be coming down to being a little bit more organized or more organized than than you would have to be otherwise. So if you live in London uh, and I want to go to a YouTube event next week, I can just go after work and it's not a problem. But if you're, let's say, you're a doctor and you live in Nottingham and, and you need to arrange annual leave, unfortunately, you may need to book study leave according to events that are taking place in London. So I think it's just yes, as an unfair advantage, but also I can't list a bunch of events taking place outside of London honestly off the top of my head. But it it's not impossible at all to get into the space if you don't if you don't live in London. That's something we're quite passionate about. That's why the fellowship is going remote because we've had countless messages saying. I live in Dundee and I can't fly down for a demo day for one day and fly back. So it, it all is also it's unfair in that point of view. that we should be providing more opportunities for people across the country to have access to both this information but also the network as well.
0: Yeah, it's frustrating what you just said there because I've had to plan out my calendar a month in advance just so I can attend YouTube's event next week and also Summix's event, which is it's frustrating. And I don't really want to have to do that as a junior doctor where they, I might be, where my timetable, my rotors are, are a bit more stricter than they are at medical school at the moment. So just out of curiosity, if you were in my situation, someone looking to leverage their, their unfair advantages, w- would you recommend me doing F1 and F2? In London,
1: oh, well, it depends on what your career goals are. In terms of training, like F1, F2 in London, once again, it depends on what specialties you want to go into. It is, see, the rotors and owls are the same elsewhere, but I found it a pretty intense process. Like I, I, I did both my F1, F2 in tertiary centers in London, where everyone expects you to be doing everything constantly. And I did like the academic blog, so like everyone needs you to be publishing and doing all the quips, but not just like basic quips, like the best quips in the world and orders. And everyone has to do these things. I just found the intensity of it in central London in a teaching hospital tertiary center incredibly intense compared to what my friends were describing outside of London. So in that regard, I had less time to be doing the things I really wanted to be doing because... I was just working on all this other stuff that that everyone wanted me to be doing during F1 and F2. So there's a bit of balance there, but, and to be perfectly frank with you, during my foundation years, none of this seemed to exist. This whole digital health, I'm showing my age, but like this digital health ecosystem and health tech, etc., was not an interest of mine at all. This only happened in my F3, F4, F5, etc. But overall, I would say if your aim is to complete foundation training and to build a network and to continue doing these incredible podcasts and getting even more incredible guests, or anyone who wants to build a career in health tech or outside of medicine, London is is a great place to be just because it confers so many of those opportunities. But incredibly expensive, incredibly busy, and yeah, F1, F2 was pretty intense here.
0: Yeah, yeah, thanks for that advice and we we sidetrack a little but i just when i'm here get speaking to you about it i thought i might as well ask that question so we've talked a little bit about diversifying your approach if you don't have access immediately to the amazing byte labs fellowship that you, you you guys are offering the the last thing i thought of was after having a conversation with dr claudia Pastides, who is the medical director at flow health and i believe she's also an advisor for bite labs right she was talking a little bit about how she got her role at babylon and then at flow health was just by making people aware of her skills and pushing out content online and how it's really easy now we're in this new digital age where we have social media you can really easy easily make people aware of who you are, what you can do and why you're best at what you can do. And so s- talk to me a little bit about how, so- if someone's listening and they want to also diversify their approach, get involved in the health tech space, how they can, for example, leverage their social media presence mm. and push out content to make people aware of their skills.
1: I think the importance of building a brand is where this comes from as well. Online is, and I, I don't actually like that phrase that much. Cause I just think it sounds a bit. Uh, cliche, but essentially creating content and putting it out online, the value of that cannot be understated. Because what you're doing is you're you are creating content that people find value in, but they associate that high-value content with you. Now I'll give you an example. By land, we hired an incredible social media and marketing manager called Sané, who's at Cardiff Medical School. He worked with us on biomedicine before, but we found him because of all the incredible content that he was posting on LinkedIn about how he wanted to be a solopreneur and get to 1,000 pounds monthly recurring revenue and X, Y, and Z. And he just sounded like a really interesting guy who was had nice des, like, design skills and was just, the key thing was just challenging the status quo. Yeah. And that is a phrase that I do because if you wanna do something different, build a career outside of medicine, that is automatically challenging the status quo. However, you need to demonstrate that in other areas of your professional life, you're already doing that. So going out and creating content, becoming, sharing your thoughts with the world, whatever it may be, is an incredible value add because you're demonstrating your skills and you're already demonstrating that you are challenging that status quo. And I saw I can't remember their name, but I love, I can't remember if they were a medical student or a doctor, but they were posting their own updated UI design for health tech companies. So I'll give you an example. So I, I've worked at TheraCare, which is a massive digital health company. This person said, they, they tagged TheraCare in the company and they said, we, I've redesigned your app with a, a user flow that I think is better. I've used your color schemes and I, I've used everything that you have, your brand guidelines, but I just think this is better than what you have already, no offense. And in the comments, they responded saying, this is amazing, let's jump on a call and discuss further. I don't know what the outcome of that was, but what he's done is he's developed that skill in his own time. He's put it out the world. He's and he's just using such an interesting approach. Is that he's just redesigning company's own UI, making everyone embarrassed in the company because it looks so great. And then he's getting opportunities for himself. Now that's just one example, but there are countless examples depending on what your interest is. So I think that is an incredible kind of hack to get into the space. But once again, and his perseverance, these opportunities aren't going to jump out on day one. And persistence, regular persistence. So Posting saying I'm going to post at least three times a week, every week for the next six months and setting yourself realistic goals, because that is what will really make you stand out.
0: Um, so yeah, I think
1: as I said, the value cannot be understated.
0: Yeah. It's fantastic advice there. I mean, A lot of that did resonate with me, uh, specifically, let's say, with the podcast. I I set myself a goal of trying to be consistent every week, and I have been so far. And initially, it was that challenging the status quo, and I was previously collaborated with a company and did their podcast before this podcast. And I approached them and said, the podcast you're doing at the moment isn't very good. Let me just like completely change it for you and i I think i did a pretty good job so yeah amazing advice and just as we're closing up i wanted to ask you this question because a little birdie told me that you have written music for some a-list people the likes of not to name specific names and this isn't just to say that you have done it for them but a-list people like ed sheeran khalid big names in the space so tell me a little bit about your passion for music and specifically about the importance of having this creative release and the benefits of that in both your personal and professional life. So, and thank you for your kind words,
1: obviously. Before I went to medical school, I wanted to be a professional songwriter, but both my parents are doctors and basically said, have you discovered this incredible world of medicine and then that's when those dreams were crushed essentially which is fair enough because my plan was to move to new york and be a professional songwriter about 15 years old i then went to medical school tried to keep up my writing skills and my plan after f2 was to always just move to la and once again work as a songwriter out there so that is what i did now I still continue, but in a less intense way than I did when I was in the States. And I just, I think the creative release is, in, is incredible. Having a creative release, I think is great. So I've always, the, the problem with it is that when I was a kid, I'd use, whether it's playing piano or guitar or whatever it is, I'd use it as a cathartic tool to try and get through GCSEs. And it just turned out that I was relatively okay at writing songs as well. Um, and now when you start mixing the thing that you find so relaxing with actually something commercial that can make money and bring you success that's really annoying actually so if you can try and separate it and actually just use it as a creative release i think like i i would try and play guitar every day after work just because i found it relaxing just taking your mind of things like i, I have self-diagnosed myself with at least add like attention deficit disorder and when you play an instrument and you just sit there for half an hour and nothing else matters suddenly a lot of your fears disappear, at least for that short period of time. So everyone has a release normally in some way, whether that's tour or uh, music or some like art, whatever it is, some element of creativity. And if you can keep those up during medical school and and beyond, I think it's incredible because it may, I I just think it makes you more of a well-rounded individual as well. Uh, I'm not saying you need to become the world's greatest at anything, but I, I think it's just being able to have some kind of way to uh so just a
0: cathartic tool essentially do you play music i do i play the drums it's difficult being at university when you can't bring your drums your drum kit up because i think it would annoy the housemates a bit too much but i think my creative release at the moment is definitely podcasting creating content Mm. i love uh, it though it might not seem very creative actually it's almost an art and i was speaking to musty about this just how little things like developing a thumbnail and designing it, or editing an episode to make it sound great, or just marketing it, and whether it is pushing it through social media, finding the clips that are likely to go viral, stuff like that—it's all creative. Yeah, so that, I guess that's my creative re- release. Previously, did used to be music. I did. I played in tons of different bands, orchestras in London, like in front of thousands of people but it was more difficult getting to university i guess that follow-up question from that because you you did mention about a lot of people talk about successful people talk about how monetizing your passion is probably one of the worst things you can do because you lose love for that passion and obviously i'm set with this podcast i'm setting some long-term goals for myself and uh, some of it is around if the opportunity were to arise, monetizing it and monetizing the content I'm producing. So what's your perspective on this?
1: a tough one, because money is a nice thing to have, but not money, no problems. So it's about <laughs> trying to figure out once again, like you said, you're trying to figure out your aims now is once you start switching the monetization switch on, if you're a, sol- a solo creator, it's actually not such a bad idea, I think. It's just, I probably A, B test it, or at least try and really closely monitor. It's not churn, because you're not a SaaS company, but the equivalent of like, how many people are still listening? How many people check out when you place an ad, etc. Because if your primary aim is to use this as a vehicle for something else, so you're building a brand for yourself so that other people can know about you so that something else can happen, your aim is to get as large an audience as physically possible. The money is going to be second to that. If, if that is, if that's the goal you want to go down, if it's the route of, I want to build one of the biggest podcasts in the world, I want to overtake Joe Rogan. Then once again, actually, you still want a massive audience and then the money will come. But if this is, I want to create a lifestyle business that can bring in a little bit of money and will help me pay rent or whatever it may be. Then once again, closely monitor how having ads or whatever it may be within your podcast affects your usership and retainment throughout the entirety of your podcast. And if it doesn't take a massive hit, you can probably pay off some of your bills and then grow it. It'll probably, the growth may be slower depending on how you implement those monetization strategies, but I'm not completely against it. Like I listen to one of my favorite podcasts is My First Million, which I absolutely adore, I find it hilarious, yeah. but also really interesting. And they switched on, I was talking to Musty about this as well, actually. They turned on monetization, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago. And Missy was like, I hate it now. I don't want to listen to it. They're yeah. sold they're, they're sellouts, which is completely <laughs> fair enough. And I was like, I don't care, I just skip through it. I don't it
0: doesn't anything yeah. do to it, it's different to the ads. So everyone will re- respond differently to it as well. It's interesting just because we were speaking about this as well and you somewhat lose I feel like you lose respect to a creative. They're just pushing another athletic screens, commercial or some other brand. So it's also that weighing that up uh, right as well. But yeah, fantastic yeah. advice, Azim. I, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've really appreciated this conversation. And just as we close up, what last bits of advice would you give someone looking to get into the health tech space? Obviously there's bias towards action, whether it is looking at the health tech fellowship that you guys are offering at Labs. all the links will be in the description, but w- what else? What else would you suggest someone doing? Practically, we did touch on some of the alternatives to BioLabs, and yeah. I don't know if you can put it in
1: a description or something. There are obviously tons of them, whether that is like the NHS Clinical Entrepreneur Program, the Topal Digital Health Fellowships. There's quite a number now actually out there. So there are alternatives. So do not I don't want this to be an advert for Biolabs because it's not actually meant to be that. It's just to make you aware. is that there are a lot of other options out there. In terms of general advice, it's, and something I wish I'd been told earlier is just don't be fearful about people around you. When I took three and a half years out after F2, I was told that I was like wasting my time. Everyone else is getting ahead through training. Your life is stagnating X, Y, and Z. And I actually cared about those opinions quite a lot at the time. In retrospect, if I'd listened to those, I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am, at least in my professional journey now. So don't be scared if you have interests and passions and you feel like you're the odd one out and other people don't relate to that, that, that shouldn't put you off as, as difficult as that is to follow that advice. And that is why it's so important having like-minded people around you. The third piece of advice is, as well as don't be scared, is don't relate to as is don't be fearful. And what I mean by that is when I say fearful, in the context of as clinicians, as medical students, we are not very good at expressing our achievements. we well, in fair it's also a British thing is that we're very good at downplaying what we do because we don't want people to judge us, they don't want people to think we're a douche, whatever the, the the thing is. But you should be very proud of getting through medical school, going through medical school, becoming a doctor, becoming an allied health professional, and that is an incredible achievement. And the only way people are gonna know about you is if you start talking about what you're doing and what you're achieving. don't, don't be a douche, don't, don't come at it in that angle, but you have to be more comfortable with expressing your value and that really shows an in interview because I've interviewed for a few kind of tech roles, when where I've been on the panel and incredible people have come to that interview, incredible doctors with tech experience, but they're not comfortable in saying how wonderful they are, or at least how wonderful their achievements have been. So yeah, don't, don't be fearful.
0: Azim keep smashing it you, you guys what you're doing with bite medicine bite labs bite world in general it, it is paving the way as i said before this podcast i was doing a bit of medical school work with bite medicine it's completely changing the way i've revised at it at uni and then equally at the same time i have you guys paving the way in the health tech space and someone to, uh, people to look up to so keep smashing it and i hope to be listening to more a-list celebrity songs that i know azim has written thank you so (laughs) much
1: for uh, for having me on ash and i'll hopefully see you on youtube next week